Good morning, everyone. My name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible with you that you brought, maybe on your phone, maybe the good old-fashioned paper kind, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 13, in just a moment I'm going to read our text. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin by reading the first 17 verses. This is what the disciple John writes. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If you were with us last September, we began a journey through the Gospel of John, and along the way, we've taken a few breaks. We're returning to the Gospel of John again, and with the the season of Easter in front of us, what we're going to do is we're going to touch down here next week. We're going to fast forward to chapter 18 as we look at all of those events and conversations leading up to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. At times, when a subject matter is incredibly small, a a photographer will change the lens on their camera and choose to narrow the focus of her field of vision so that the most minute of details can be revealed. And, And in many respects, this is what John is doing in his gospel. As things get close to the end with the cross looming John slows things down, he he narrows his field of focus because he doesn't want us to miss out on any of the details and what they reveal about Jesus, about what God is doing through Jesus in the world. And so in this magnificent chapter, chapter 13, three primary people are on display, Jesus, Judas, and Peter. 
And based on chapter 13, if I were to summarize these characters, these three characters, by a single word, I would describe Jesus with the word love. I would describe Judas with the word betrayal and Peter with the word denial. And so this morning, we're going to move through the three movements of the Scripture, beginning with the first 17 verses I've I've read. This chapter begins in a really interesting way with a series of statements concerning what Jesus knew. The Scripture's on the screen behind me. Jesus knew that His hour had come. He knew that He'd come from God and was returning to God. He knew that He was going to be betrayed by Judas. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. All of us someday are going to die. But it's God's mercy that we spend the vast majority of our lives completely unaware of the when and how. Jesus knew the when and how of his death. We're not told when Jesus knew, but here at the Last Supper, Jesus knew. This knowledge brought focus and intention to Jesus, the things he said and did. And there's one particular phrase that we read in in John 13 that is is interesting enough that, that I just want to pause and explore it. John writes, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And to me, this is a curious phrase, particularly given the fact that something is going to happen to Jesus. In a matter of hours, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tried, convicted, beaten, and then crucified. And yet, John writes, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Let's think for a moment about Jesus' power. If you believe the eyewitness accounts as I do, then there can be no doubt concerning Jesus. He was powerful. He transformed water into wine. He spoke to the wind and the waves, and they obeyed. He opened eyes of people who were blind. He unstopped ears that couldn't hear. People who couldn't walk, he raised up on their feet. We're even told that one of his good friends, Lazarus, he raised from death to life. And that's how we tend to think about the powerful. They use the power they have to affect change all around them. And all the while, the really powerful people affect others, but they themselves remain untouched, undisturbed. In Jesus, we find this great mystery. He is God Almighty in human form. And so at one and the same time, he's above us, he's beyond us, and he's the one who draws near. He can be known. And as we discover in our text, he can be harmed. So it's a certain kind of power that we're talking about. So as John talks about Jesus knowing that that God had put all things under his power, it's really a statement about divine sovereignty, All that was about to happen to Jesus was actually in keeping with God's sovereign purpose and plan. In the infinite wisdom of God, God the Son became human. He submitted to those who plotted his death. But all the while, God was at work in Christ to redeem and save the entire world. So we have this whole set of religious leaders conspiring against Jesus. We have someone on the inner circle, Judas, betraying him. But it only appeared as though Jesus was a pawn in their game. To borrow an analogy, God is like 
a grand master of chess, and the board is in front of him. But unlike human grandmasters, he can see far more than 15 moves ahead. No one can outmaneuver God because of what he sees and knows. And so the death of Jesus, while horrible, cannot properly be described as tragic or unavoidable, as if it happened to him. If all things were under Jesus' power, that means both everything and everyone. That includes Judas' betrayal. It includes Peter's denial. It includes the agony of the cross. From heaven's perspective, the cross was not something that happened to Jesus. It was something that Jesus freely chose. For your sake, for mine, for the world. What I want to do at this time is I I just want to set our sights on this act of foot washing and set it within the context of the Gospels. When you take John's Gospel, this written account of the life of Jesus, and you set it alongside the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what you realize is there's some differences in the different accounts. Each of the different authors has a particular perspective, and they record certain things. And so in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at this Last Supper, all three of these gospel writers redefine the Passover meal in light of Jesus' coming action on the cross. And so you'll remember, Jesus took bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is broken for you. And in the same way, after dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of many. Now, when you get to John's gospel, we have the same meal, but none of these words are explained. We're not told anything about the details surrounding the bread and cup. If you read Luke's account of of this last meal, he includes an argument that broke out right in the middle of a meal. And so they're talking about this and that, and at some point, the disciples began to argue with one another over which of them was the greatest in the circle. And Jesus let it go on for some time, and and finally he shut it down, saying, in this world, kings and great men lord it over people, but among you, it has to be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like the servant. Who is more important? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves? It's the one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, for I am among you as one who serves. Now, Luke's gospel is the only one that records this argument followed by Jesus' explanation. John doesn't include it, but instead John includes something else that we don't find in any of the other gospels. It's a symbolic action performed by Jesus, this foot washing. Now, if you can, I I just want you, if it helps to close your eyes, by all means do this, but I want you to imagine the scene with me. So there's Jesus and all of the disciples around the table. They're enjoying good food and and, and great conversation, but at some point, the conversation turned and it began to get a little bit competitive. Perhaps Peter 
was telling a story, everyone was listening in, and in the story he, he made himself the hero of the story, and that irritated his brother Andrew, and then the two of them began to engage in this kind of brotherly bickering. And not wanting to be outdone by Peter or Andrew, James and John jump in, and they're asserting their own self-importance. And before long, everyone's talking over everyone, arguing about who was the best disciple, who was most important to Jesus. It's not that difficult to imagine. And Jesus spoke up to set things straight. No more talk about greatness. I am among you as one who serves. And then, to the disciples' horror, Jesus got up. He took off his outer cloak. And the words he just spoken, he demonstrated in action. He began one by one to wash their feet. And so the one who was seated among them was now kneeling before them, and each disciple is staring at the top of Jesus' head, face burning with shame. And he took their feet in his hands, and he began to wash. We're not told which disciple was first or which one was last, but we know that Judas was included in the foot washing lovingly, gently. His feet were washed too. Until Jesus made his way around to Peter, we're actually not told of anyone saying anything. I can only imagine it was complete awkward silence interrupted by the sound of water dripping from people's feet. And when, Peter got, when Jesus got to Peter, Peter just outright refused. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Because until this time, he had known a certain kind of Jesus. Jesus strong and powerful, Jesus leader of multitudes, Jesus worker of miracles, brilliant teacher, great and high Lord. This is the one that Jesus had signed up to follow. But Jesus the foot washer? The CEO of a Fortune 500 company doesn't scrub the employee bathroom. They don't. The queen doesn't ask her servants if she can do their laundry. It doesn't happen. And as Peter watched Jesus, he knew that this act was beneath Jesus. It was humiliating. Surely Jesus must see this. And Peter's horror shows how little he understands the nature and character of God. Taking that lowly place as one who serves cannot and does not diminish God. We get a strong sense in the Scriptures that it is the glory of God to create, to serve, to redeem. In all of these things, God's magnificence is on display. Humanity, though, seeks a very different kind of glory. Jesus said to Peter, unless I wash you, you can have no part of me. And in so doing, Jesus is saying something more than merely foot washing because this wasn't simply a lesson on servant leadership. It foreshadowed this great cleansing that was still to come. The cross is the place of our cleansing. It's the place where we're washed, where we're forgiven and set free. And unless we come to God through the cross, we can have no part in the salvation God intends. After Jesus had finished with the feet, 
he donned his outer clothing, he sat back down, and he asked, do you understand what I've done? It's interesting, in a span of five verses, in, in, in some overt and, 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 and more uh, subtle ways, three times Jesus repeats himself. In essence, he says, do for others as I've done for you. And we are left to grapple with the truth that if there is no act of love that is beneath Jesus, even washing the feet of his betrayer, then there is no act of love that is beneath us. Verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Again, to know and to do are two separate but complementary actions. There is a blessing, friends, that only comes when we do as Jesus did. Knowing is not enough. It must be complemented with doing. Listen to what Jean Vanier writes. The great danger for all of us as human beings, including those in the church, is to love power. Power can turn us quickly upon ourselves and strengthen our egos. For us to become humble servants we are, who are called to raise up brothers and sisters is a difficult task. We need to be given the Holy Spirit who alone can change our hearts so that we don't seek our own importance, our own power, for our own need to be seen as admirable or being the best of God's creation or the best of his church. That's what the disciples were all, all about. Who's the best? Who's the greatest? If John chapter 13 ended with verse 17, I think all of us might breathe a little easier. We'd be inspired to this noble task of servanthood, fully expecting that, that as we serve, those we serve will come to appreciate what we do for them. They will be blessed and they will tell us how grateful they are. Oh, Mark, I am so grateful to have you serve me as you do. I don't deserve your kindness, your strength, your wisdom. If, you have ne if you've never imagined yourself riding the wave of your own greatness, floating on the accolades of others, enthroned on the praises of those around you, then either you lack imagination or you are living in denial. We've all had those moments. In my proud moments, in my bitter, hurt moments, in my <laughs> insecure moments, I have imagined just this kind of coronation. We all have. The desire for power, for influence, for praise is, is deep within us, and only Jesus can remove it. Only we can invite him to do so. Leaving behind this first movement in the text, we come to the second, verses 18 to 30. And the focus is still on Jesus, but there's an addition of another character, one that emerges. It's the betrayer. It's, it's Judas. Now again, in, in verse 19, we have this, this statement. Jesus says, I'm telling you what's going to happen before it happens. Why? So that you know that my life and all of life is under the divine providence of God. Nothing will happen to Jesus apart from the, the Father's plan. And the coming betrayal isn't going to subvert God's purpose. Instead, it will make it so. But in spite of what Jesus knew, verse 21 we read that Jesus was troubled in spirit. So I just, I just want to break this down for you because, because we, we don't think this way when it comes to our own lives. So Jesus knew what was going to happen. 
He was fully committed to the Father's plan. He was fully secure in the Father's faithfulness to him, and he was troubled in spirit. The and is important. Most of us, as we think about faith, we think, well, if I trust God and God is good, then he's not going to let anything bad ever happen in my life. But when he does, we find our faith beginning to fade. This idea of faith that we can somehow float above all of life's circumstances, untouched and undisturbed, if we're really faithful, not even Jesus experienced this. When Jesus spoke about betrayal coming from within the, the circle, um, all 12 of the disciples were shocked. They were all surprised. Eleven were shocked because they couldn't imagine how anyone in the circle could betray Jesus. One of them, Judas, was shocked because Jesus knew. Jesus knew it was him. And I suspect he instantly went into that fight or flight mode. His heart began to pound. His breath became labored. If Jesus exposed him in the circle, then the other disciples might tear him limb from limb. So we have this kind of revealing without revealing that goes on. John is seated next to Peter, or John is seated next to Jesus, and, and Peter motions to him, like, ask him, who is it? Who's the one that's going to betray Jesus? And so John leans in and, and says to Jesus, who is it? And we know from the text that Jesus gave a clear answer, but from what follows, it seems to indicate that no one heard Jesus' answer except for Judas. So, so perhaps we have John on one side, then there's Jesus, and then Judas is on the other. John leans in and says, who is it? And Jesus leans toward Judas and whispers, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread. And he gave it to Judas. And then out loud, verse 27, Jesus says, what you were about to do, do quickly. And we're told that no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Only Jesus knew the identity of the betrayer. Only Jesus and Judas. And after receiving the bread from Jesus' hand, Jesus prompt, or Judas promptly got up. He went out, and John remarks, and it was night, the time when darkness reigns. And all of us are left to wonder, why did Jesus do it? We have to imagine that Judas, being a part of that inner circle, he saw all the same miracles that the other 11 did. He heard all the same teaching. He too ate and talked and walked with Jesus, just like all of the others. There's some who, who suggest that Judas didn't really have a choice. He was chosen by God before the beginning of time to play the, world, the, the, the role of betrayer. And in this case, he's a poor, unfortunate soul chosen for an unenviable task, and he's worthy of our pity. Others suggest that the answer is all in his last name, Judas Iscariot. This word Iscariot is a derivative of the word Sicarii, Latin for dagger men. It referred to a, a group of Jewish assassins present during Jesus' day who wanted to overthrow Rome's power, and they did so by assassinating soldiers, government officials, and the like. It's possible that initially Judas attached himself to Jesus because he saw in Jesus a person of remarkable power. But when Jesus refused to use his power to 
to free Israel, to, to, to change the political climate, Judas became angry. Now, there's no way we can verify the historicity of this theory. It's possible. We don't know. What we do know is that at some point along the way, Judas grew tired of following Jesus and he wanted out. He'd followed Jesus long enough to know that he wasn't a fraud. There were too many miracles and healings, acts of love and courage to dismiss Jesus as a fraud. And yet, dismiss Jesus, Judas did. And the question is, why? As you look at how the disciples lived, we know that they lived hand to mouth. They relied on the generosity of people around them. They had enough to eat, and sometimes they had a place to sleep. Sometimes they didn't. We're told that in Judas betraying Jesus, that he was given 30 pieces of silver, but in actuality, it wasn't that much money. Scholars suggest it's somewhere between one day's wages and, and the price of a common slave. Certainly not enough to buy a villa on the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps it was the foot washing, and that was the last straw. Judas wasn't going to bend in front of anyone. If that's where Jesus was going, he was out. We don't know why Jesus, Judas walked away from Jesus, but perhaps the more, more pressing question is, why do any of us walk away from Jesus? We walk away when we decide that Jesus isn't what we want anymore. We turn away when we don't like where he's leading us. When the life he offers seems far too narrow and restrictive or too difficult. When Jesus doesn't give us enough of this or, or that, when he doesn't come to us on our terms, that's when we tend to walk away. And the irony, of course, is that everyone who walks away from Jesus does so believing that they're walking towards a better kind of life. That's what Judas thought. But as he walked away from Jesus, he walked into darkness. And the same is true if we walk away from Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. Apart from him, there is no light. The final movement in our text, verses 31 to 38, focuses in on a command that that Jesus gives to his disciples, a command to love, but, but it also brings with it the emergence of Peter as someone walking in a kind of darkness himself, a, a blindness towards himself. First, let's talk about the command to love. We need to keep in mind that it follows on the heels of Jesus' symbolic action, the, the foot washing. And so it's clear when Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, he's, he's not recommending that people just feel warm, sentimental thoughts about others. It's much more than that. The call to love is clearly a call to humility, a, a call to serve one another, and Jesus is the clear example of what love looks like, a love that crosses all kinds of boundaries, Age, ethnicity, economic status. Jesus' love is, is expressed in his willingness to wait for others, to be patient with them. His love is quick to forgive. Jesus' love is, is the kind of love that chooses to believe the best about you and me, even when we're at our worst. His love is humble, it's generous, it's strong. And we, the people of God are called to embody this same love as we live our lives together. It's a high and holy calling. It's an impossible calling. 
unless we live in this ongoing encounter of God's love ourselves. Shortly after speaking this command, Jesus indicates that it's time for him to leave his disciples. They're not going to see him anymore. You know, um, and where he goes, they're, they're not going to be able to follow. And, and when Peter hears this, he's troubled. And he asks, verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And as I read these words and consider Peter's own blindness with respect to himself, I, I wonder, are we not all, Peter? Is not our capacity for ignorance and self-deception so much greater than we know? I mean, Peter was so confident that he knew himself. He was loyal. He was courageous. He was heroic. Even Jesus, if everyone else runs, not me, I'll stand by your side. In fact, I will lay down my life to protect yours. And Jesus says, not so. In the moment of decision, Peter did the one thing he swore he could never do. He denied even knowing Jesus. Self-awareness is vital, and without it, all of us just stumble around in the dark, unaware of who we are, unaware of the effect that we have on the people around us, either for good or for ill. But none of us arrives at self-awareness simply by thinking about ourselves more. Staring in the mirror or gazing within isn't enough. It cannot solve the mystery of the self. Ironically, we cannot know ourselves apart from others. So Peter thought of himself in one light, and Jesus saw Peter's true face. Is this not the case for us? If I am compulsive or proud or demanding or impatient, I will discover these truths in the company of others. They'll let me know. If I'm greedy or envious or competitive, it's by interacting with those who have what I don't have or who are what I want to be that I discover these things about myself. I may live completely unaware of an inner impulse to always be right, to always have the last word, but the people around me see it as plain as the nose on my face. Over the last 10, 15 years, TV has really changed from a, a very, often from a very produced show that, that we know isn't real but we enjoy watching to reality kind of TV. People engage in competitions or, or whatever. If you've ever watched a reality TV show like American Idol or So You Think You Can Dance, then you have seen people who are completely blind with respect to themselves. They legitimately think they are the next big thing a star just waiting to be discovered, and they're genuinely shocked to discover that they're tone deaf or that they have two left feet. Has no one ever told them? I never thought of myself as being an angry person until God revealed just how deep the anger went in my life. I never thought of myself as, as being a particularly selfish person until I was married, until I became a father. And as I began to encounter the patient love of my wife, I recognized that there was something in me 
that wasn't lovely at all. Long before I had eyes to see or a heart to understand, people saw in me leadership gifts, the capacity for teaching. I didn't know it. And when they said it to me, I didn't believe it. I never imagined ever being on a stage, teaching, being a pastor. It's in the company of others that we come to know ourselves as we are. You may be strong or wise or, or, or creative. You, you may be quick to listen to help. You may be really good at loving others. These are good things that you may not know, but the people around you see. They experience. As Christians, we believe ultimately that we cannot know ourselves apart from the one who created us and redeems us. In fact, a Christian believes that, that the things that God says about them are the truest words ever spoken because God sees and knows everything. Jesus sees and knows you just as clearly as he saw and knew Peter. And the words that Jesus spoke to Peter in this moment weren't meant to shame or harm or condemn him. They were spoken truthfully, lovingly, None of us progress very far in the spiritual life when we live with a false image of ourselves or a false image of God. Peter learned this, and we need to learn the same truth. At the Last Supper, Jesus was not dining with the spiritually elite. He wasn't dining with those, those um, sinless few who had, who had scaled the dizzying heights of holiness he ate with 12 men who, in a matter of hours, would either betray, deny, or abandon him. All of them. But knowing this, Jesus said to his beloved disciples, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. Jesus willingly, lovingly welcomed his friends around the table. More than any other meal, the Last Supper was an act of loving, generous welcome. And so I ask, when you think about God, is this the image that comes to mind? A generous, loving welcome. When you think about the Lord's Supper, is this what comes to mind? Do you sense the generous, loving welcome of God, an invitation to come to commune with Him? All of us know about the power of a meal. There's nothing magical about sharing a pot of soup or dividing that last Yorkshire pudding. The power is never in the food. It's in the communion that happens around the table. It's in the power of, of love freely given and received. And the same is true when it comes to the Lord's Supper. The power isn't in bread or juice. It's in the one who hosts the meal. The one who loves and forgives, and heals, and transforms. He's the one who invites us to come, to Him. This is Christ's meal. He is our host, and He's present every time we gather by His Holy Spirit, and He invites you this morning to come to experience His loving embrace, to commune with Him, and find in Him everything you need. And so this morning, if it's your heart's desire to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, to receive his life, 
then this meal is for you. And in a few brief moments, you are going to be invited to come and receive. At this time, I, w- I want to invite our worship team to come and join me on stage as, uh, as we're participating in the Lord's Supper. They're going to sing and play for us. But, but before they start, I just want to give a, a few brief instructions that are a little bit different than how we typically do communion. As you all know, we find ourselves in, in the middle of cold and flu season. We also find ourselves um, with increasing concern with respect to the coronavirus. I think our, our less than full sanctuary this morning is, is an indication that there's, there's a number of people concerned about what's going on. For, for the moment, here on the North Shore and, and in, in the province, there's some containment that, that has been going on in terms of the virus, but we want to be prudent and the, the, the symbolism connected to the Lord's Supper is, is really important to us. And so we wanted to think about a way that we could continue as we do, but, but mitigating some of the risks. And so after talking with a couple of physicians from within our church community, um, we're going to shift our practice for the next little while. Instead of each of you coming forward and being invited to use your hands to dip into a common piece of bread or a loaf and then into the cup, our communion servers who have washed and sanitized and done all they can to make sure that their, their hands are, are where they need to be. They're going to do it for you. And so you're going to come forward to receive, and we're going to invite you to hold out your hands. We do have a napkin here if you don't want any, any wet bread on, on your hand. But they're going to dip the bread in the cup for you. They're going to drop it in your hands, and then you're, you're going to be able to eat with thanksgiving. As you come this morning, do so knowing that, that God loves you that he is generous in his forgiveness and he welcomes you at his table. Uh, communion service, please come forward and find your place. Mm-hmm.